Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts, Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. I'm Lucia Rahili. Hey, everyone. Since our last episode, longtime McKinsey leader and talent sage, Bill Shanninger has left us to take his speaking and consulting act on the road full time. The best way to follow Bill is on his website, BillShanninger.com, where you can sign up for updates on his latest research and his appearances and so forth. And you can also reach or follow him on LinkedIn. He's got a big audience there. And for this reboot of McKinsey Talks Talent, Brian and I are joined by the amazing Brooke Weddle. She is a partner here at McKinsey with deep, deep people and organizational experience. Brooke, welcome. We are so excited to have you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that warm introduction. And I'll join you in wishing Bill all the best as he goes forward. And Brooke, it's so great to have you. While Bill is irreplaceable, I know that uh, he and I could not be more excited to have you step in and join us. We are talking about the shift towards skills-based hiring, so assessing job candidates on the basis of their skills rather than on college degrees or other sort of more conventional credentials. Brooke, let's start with you. Give us a quick example of what skills-based hiring might look like in practice just to bring that to life. Sure. A really simple example is think of a job posting for a customer service rep at a large company. Uh, Many of the the job postings use job descriptions that are dated. So imagine taking that job description and saying, we are no longer going to require a four-year bachelor's degree for this role. And you emphasize instead the skills required for success in that role. That's a very basic way to implement skills-based hiring. There's a lot behind that, but that is... uh, kind of a simple example. Mm -hmm. And Brian, tell us, what is behind this trend? Why is it happening now? Why is it on the rise at this particular juncture? I think there are two things that are coming together to make skill-based hiring something that many organizations are thinking about. One is about creating access to opportunity. A real view to say, look, a college degree, if it's not needed for a job, shouldn't be a barrier to somebody getting the job. If you have the skills, no matter where you learn them, and you can do the work, you should be able to do the work. We're also seeing skill-based hiring because organizations in many technical roles are having trouble finding the people that they need. And so if they can eliminate formal job requirements, if they can peel that back and say, actually, what we need are these underlying skills. And so, for example, you know, a video game manufacturer may say, hey, what I want is somebody with video game experience to help, you know, the development of our you know, blockbuster platform. Well, there aren't that many people with video game experience. That's a kind of limited market. But if you look at the underlying skills that are required, things like some of the software engineering or programming or storytelling, people with lots of those underlying skills would only need a short boot camp and how to apply that into the video game construct. When we talk about skills-based hiring, are we including softer skills or are we mostly talking about technical skills like coding or, you know, being able to use industrial manufacturing equipment and so transferring that skill from one sector to another sector? 
mean, this is one of the most common questions I get from clients when they're starting to think through what it means to go to skill-based hiring. Is it just skills? Is it skills and attributes? You know, we encourage people to think more broadly. Okay, how do we think about what somebody actually needs to succeed in the job, and then how do we assess for it? One of the biggest barriers that we see for companies moving to skill-based practices isn't recognizing the barriers that they have in place. They don't know how to assess on the other end and have trouble thinking through, okay, we do need these soft skills. I know if somebody worked in this role for five years without getting fired, they probably developed the soft skills given it's in a customer service role or given it's in a other role. But if they've worked there in six months, how am I confident that they have those skills? How do we develop the interviews so that we, in a structured way, can test for some of the things that we know are important for the job? So I think it is possible to test for soft skills, but you have to be very thoughtful in how you're doing it because a soft skills interview shouldn't just revert to the beer test or, or you know, some of the questions of, well, what'd you do this weekend? And do I like this person? What right? is the beer test? Would I have Hang a beer on. with this person? Oh, I see. Right, I see. right, right. right. Would, would I have a beer with them? Because <laughs> too often what it ends up is would I have a beer with this person, which introduces all sorts of potential biases towards, hey, I'm going to have a beer with people that are somewhat like me. So you have to be able to go away from those generalized questions, you know, to some very specific questions. Tell me an instance when you demonstrated X that then let somebody tell a story about some of their soft skills. So it is it is possible. Organizations should think about soft skills as part of skill-based hiring, but it does require a rigor to how they think about assessing for it, looking for the markers, and interviewing. But there are real challenges like assessment. The other one I hear a lot of companies talk about is the onboarding and learning development of people who are coming in with a, more of a skills-based profile versus, a, you know, a signal that would, you know, kind of set them on a more structured path uh, that is more recognizable, frankly, at the organization. And frankly, let's let's also include the public sector here. There are at least 10 states that have come out pretty boldly in terms of moving to a skills-based approach in terms of some of their public sector roles. But then there is the change management challenge of making this work truly and doing so at scale at companies versus people coming in and not being set up for success. You know, it's interesting. There was an excellent article in The New York Times, which you probably both saw about the precipitous drop in the perception of the value of the college degree, particularly among certain demographics. That downtick, however, was confined to the U.S., I believe, because the cost of higher ed in the U.S. is so much higher than in other countries in many cases. Are we seeing skills-based hiring as a primarily U.S. phenomenon, or is it broader than U.S.? Is it global? Skills-based hiring is a global phenomenon because across the world, organizations are having trouble filling roles, mm -hmm. uh, in particular roles that require some level of technical expertise. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we've learned a lot about what workers want from their employer. And in some ways, the employer-employee contract has pretty significantly shifted, right? We, increasingly, we want more flexibility, development, right? That interface with the manager is so important as well. And when you think about skills-based hiring, that does enable some of that flexibility. You think about the gig economy. If you can start to modulate 
and break down certain parts of roles and have people fit to those in ways that fit with the rest of their life, that is appealing. And, and you can talk about some of the generational differences in that context that I think are, are pretty relevant here. I mean, I mean, let's talk about college for a second. So I want everybody who's been to college, who's listening to this, to think back to a time when perhaps it was a snow day and class was canceled. Were you worried that you were wasting your tuition money because that <laughs> class had been canceled and you are not getting the skill that you needed? Were you desperately concerned that missing that class meant you weren't getting the ROI on your investment? <laughs> no, because you recognized that what you were getting from college at the end of the day was a credential that showed you had the stick the intelligence that got you through school, that got you a credential, that it was that credential that then was the unlock to a career. It wasn't what was taught on that Wednesday in January, right? I don't want anybody to walk away from this thinking that we think that, you know, college is not important. It doesn't develop well-rounded people. It doesn't advance thought and investigation into the human condition. It does all of those things and is incredibly uh, important. But if somebody doesn't have those opportunities, somebody doesn't have that access, we shouldn't shut them out of careers that really didn't require that in the first place. So let's create those pathways to opportunity uh, for those folks so we really do have a more uh, inclusive economy. Expanding the talent pool, so mitigating the kind of scarcity that we've been seeing, particularly in the tight, tight talent market of recent years, is one clear advantage of skills-based hiring. Let's talk about some of the other benefits of refocusing on skills versus on other credentials. Does skills-based hiring open up the market to non-traditional and potentially more diverse candidates, for example? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at uh, who has the skills but not the degrees, you know, those are disproportionately people of color. Uh, and so if we're thinking through how to create more equitable pathways to opportunity that really do link to what folks can do on the job, you know, equity, you know, thinking about opportunity is one of the reasons people are investing in skill-based hiring. And it's one of the reasons that why we as McKinsey have partnered with uh, the Markle Foundation, the Rework America Alliance, to work on skill-based hiring. Uh, to really develop the fact basis to, hey, what are skill-based career pathways? What are the real barriers to hiring? And how can we empower uh, organizations in local communities to better help individuals looking for jobs and help companies, in particular small and medium-sized business companies that want to adopt skill-based practices, to actually adopt them? Including taking our own medicine, right, and adjusting our own approaches to hiring where, you know, we have a, a, a partner at McKinsey who does not have a four-year degree, right? And so up and down the board, uh, there have been uh, changes we have made to reflect this commitment that Brian is talking about. The, a couple of other benefits of this skills-based hiring. So keep in mind that the four-year degree or even a two-year degree was never a perfect signal, right? So many employers have spent years trying to partner effectively with higher ed to try to really fine-tune what the employer needs and what the higher ed institution is cultivating within their pools of talent, right? The other angle to this is not necessarily hiring, but think of internal talent markets. Mm -hmm. Think about people who are in roles that want to have 
not necessarily, you know, a linear approach to career development, but try out different roles at different times across an organization. Well, if you have more of a skills-based approach to creating those talent marketplaces, I can find talent where I might not have previously looked right for roles in my own organization, which helps the company. And it also helps talent who want to have this more flexible approach to career development. One of the examples of companies, you know, not being satisfied with what they're getting out of the college to graduates and then figuring out their own skill-based program is Boeing in their cybersecurity area. Boeing had challenges hiring for cybersecurity roles. And when they looked to get graduates of computer science programs, they found that people that graduate from those programs may have had a theoretical understanding, but they were still at step one on what the day-to-day cybersecurity, here's what we need to do is. So they created a cybersecurity apprenticeship program that did not require a four-year degree. And so for those apprenticeships, there is a very competitive process. They actually, through the application process itself, had a number of steps of assessment throughout the process. For those that were awarded, it's an apprenticeship. And so they are learning on the job, and the folks that are apprenticing them are signing off on literally, you know, 100-plus individual skills and capabilities that somebody is demonstrating and building over the source of the apprenticeship. So at the end, these apprentices, even though they don't have a college degree, have been taught the very specific elements that they need to be excellent in cybersecurity. Yeah, that's super interesting. Brooke, you alluded to this um, mechanism of the internal talent marketplace. What are some of the benefits for workers of skill-based hiring besides the obvious, which is being offered a job that you might not otherwise have gotten? Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're already in the door, right? We're not talking about hiring anymore. I think one is this notion of flexibility. Uh, not necessarily in terms of I work these hours, but flexibility in terms of what are my options that I have as someone who works at this company. So I start off uh, in customer service. I'm really good at, uh, you know, kind of meeting with other people and, and meeting their needs, understanding their needs. Well, maybe I could move over to marketing. And, and that's a different kind of perspective on, on how to read, understand, shape customer externally facing needs. So the building blocks could be skills versus just looking at talent in terms of a role and, and kind of a, a straight progression in terms of, well, that role leads to these two roles. And by the way, if two people are in those two roles and they're not leaving, well, that I'm stuck, right? I have nowhere to go. So I think from a career pathing perspective, it opens up all sorts of doors. And so managers who are able to have a conversation around what kinds of skills you're trying to develop, where do you want to head uh, versus, you know, kind of just hierarchy and role, I think also increases the aperture for um, flexibility, meaning and work um, and, and overall development as well. It can be tremendous in terms of thinking through and planning your own career, planning what learning and development experiences you want extra classes and training you have on the side. And I'm super excited by Gen AI and the potential there to have, you know, tools that actually help people, you know, navigate where they are. There's some talent management platforms that do it really well now across roles, but where we're seeing organizations get stuck maybe a little bit is there are in many organizations thousands of roles with lots of underlying jobs to be done that are different levels with lots of underlying skills. And so if we try to attack all of it at once, it can be a little bit challenging. 
and people can lose sight of what are we solving for. But where we're seeing organizations have the most success is, okay, let's focus on the handful of skill-based pathways where we're seeing the most traction, where we're seeing the most people move from one area, maybe it's a non-digital area into digital area. Maybe it's moving from distribution centers into coding, whatever it is. But let's look at where there are the top handful of pathways and then double down on those pathways versus in everything to everywhere, which can be complicated. One other company that I think is doing something interesting here is IBM. And they have moved to more skill-based performance management. IBM is very clear strategically the skill shift that they need to see uh, to be competitive uh, going forward. And so they are now recognizing the skills that people have that are on that forward-looking vision in the performance review process. And they are rewarding people who are investing in developing the skills that are required for the future. And so if we're thinking about the talent marketplace or thinking about moving people across the organization, being focused on, one, what are the skill shifts we need in the future? And are we being very clear on how we're marking who has the skills and how that connects to jobs? And then two, how are we very clear on the most common skill-based pathways? If companies can tackle those, that creates a great foundation to move towards the broader vision, where sometimes starting with the broader vision, you know, people can lose, why are we doing this? And is this really something people even want? Being specific and how you get started matters a ton. So, Brian, you teed up something really interesting there, which is Gen AI and the way that this might enable skills-based hiring or complicate it. How might Gen AI be of use or a complicating factor there? I think Gen AI is helpful in two areas in skill-based hiring, skill-based practices. One, it can help hiring managers better write skill-based job descriptions. If we're trying to match skills somebody has to a job that needs those skills, we need to understand what does the job really need? And Gen AI can help, in particular for well-known roles, hiring managers articulate, here are the jobs that need to be done, and here are the underlying skills. Gen AI can also help an individual understand, hey, given where I've come from and the skills that I have, what do I need to do to get into some of those other roles? The, the other thing that I'm excited about is the promise of learning and employment records, or LERs. And think of this as a lifelong transcript, that regardless of where you gained the skill, you have a record of it. So you could have taken it in a class in college. You could have gotten an online certificate. You could have been awarded employee of the month. Employee of the month, when you're talking about soft skills, that all of a sudden can become part of a credential. That can be part of a learning record, right? And that those LERs in particular, if you can make them interoperable across companies where there's some common view of this is how we think about skills. This is how we uh, recognize them, both hard skills and softer skills. And there's a real movement to have that record be owned by the employee. What do companies need to be thinking about on the L&D side in order to bring these new folks along who need their skills fine-tuned to be applicable within a given context? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and make a bold statement that I don't know of any kind of L&D organization these days that's worth their salt that's not doing a fundamental rethink of their approach. The promise here is that with the skills-based approach, you could fine-tune your learning and development strategy to be more specific in terms of addressing the skills gaps that you have, right? Because you'll have a, 
a much clearer view of what those skills gaps are in the first place. One of the things that at least I've seen in the skill-based hiring world is people are hiring for the most critical skill or the hardest to find skill of the given role. Um, they're not hiring for all of the skills in a given role. So if you're hiring for the critical or hardest to find skill, there's a real role for L&D to create the boot camp to give you the other skills that you need because you may have most of what you need for the job, but there are things that you haven't learned because you haven't been there for five years. And so being thoughtful about what are those you know, boot camps to fill in the gaps that's a core part of, of skill-based hiring. Yeah, and, and to be clear, that notion of boot camps, too, I mean, we're seeing this uh, not only in large global organizations, but on the factory floor, on the deck plate, right? You know, think foremen as a critical role, think welders as a critical role, bringing those folks in from pools that are not ready to work but ready to learn, right? A, a lot of organizations are seeing value in doing it that way because it is it is such a critical gap right now. Are there elements of culture building that leaders need to think about kind of the difference between folks who don't have a traditional college degree or the traditional credentialed proxy and those who need to <clears throat> undergo boot camp or particular kinds of training? How do you think about integrating those different cohorts culturally? Yeah, I, th I think it is a challenge. When you think about diversifying your pools of talent, you're, by definition, going to get different talent in the door. And one of the things that struck me, I saw that, you know, recently, I think it was LinkedIn put out that 70% of people get hired into an organization where they already know someone. And so if you're, you're kind of moving to a situation where you're not going to have that almost automatic cultural cohesion, if you will, with p new kinds of talent coming in the door. I think the onus is on the organization to make the onboarding experience really be as much about the, the hard elements of, of getting up and running as the soft elements, right? What are the values of this company? What do we stand for? What does it mean to be a leader at this company? What are the behaviors we look for? What are the mindsets, right? What are some of the norms that we practice? things that perhaps could be slightly taken for granted in situations where your talent flows were more homogenous, right? Now there's probably a little bit more that we need to say and do up front to make sure that um, we are getting people understanding of our cultural context and being open to where we need to push that culture in ways that are new because of this diverse talent, right? It's, it's got to be a two-way street. And I think organizations that are intentional about thinking that through are having a much better go at integrating this diverse set of talent. And, and as part of that, the managers in those organizations need to be upskilled into, hey, how do I onboard people with different backgrounds? How do I, you know, think about early stages of coaching and performance management? How do I meet people in the team where they are? And how do we convince our managers that this is worth it? And, you know, what we know is that organizations that use skill-based hiring practices see lower turnover in their skill-based hiring cohorts. And so, you know, people are like, hey, this is great. This is a job that fits, that works, um, you know, that, that lines up for me, and they're more likely to stay. So both of you are not only engaged in research on this topic, but also talking to clients every day. Where do you see leaders struggling most 
as they shift toward a skills-based hiring approach? Well, a couple things. So I do think assessment is hard. Um, heard that from multiple organizations um, that I'm working with. Uh, I think the the other kind of issue is this. There's all sorts of like throwing spaghetti at a wall and let's try out the skills-based hiring that, you know, do some experimentation. That's probably a good thing, but not necessarily a clear strategy then around how to take that forward. Meaning what do you do with that talent once it comes in? And how do you think more broadly about building skills-based pathways? There's almost like a, a lack of understanding of how to really do this at scale. To be clear, I think there are some good examples out there, but you know, an organization that is doing this end-to-end at scale in a truly effective way, there is a a scarcity of those examples at this point. And any specific counsel for folks who are thinking about developing at-scale programs? They've started with something small, perhaps, but they are thinking about how to lay the foundation for an at-scale skills-based program, what advice would you give to them? Be very specific in the problem that you're solving. Let's figure out the biggest skill pools within your organization where those folks could have roles, and let's problem solve from that. And some companies will say, well, I'm solving multiple problems. Like, great, well, you know, let's prioritize among them. <laughs> but, but getting very specific on the problems to solve, to me, is the key unlock of how to get going. Is there anything you want to add before we close You know, we've got great research from our colleagues at the McKinsey Global Institute uh, that looks at what is coming in terms of skill shortages in the U.S. There are going to be a huge number of jobs in the skilled economy that we're going to need to find people for. And if you build onto that what we need in healthcare, and we build onto that, you know, continued need for technology and other work, we're seeing all of these folks in skilled areas where there are shortages. And so I think then our, our clients are seeing the need to widen the aperture of who they're hiring just because it's tight now and it's going to be tight right. for a number of these roles in the future. Brooke, Brian, that was a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and be well.